In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord seated on a throne, high and exalted, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphs, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two wings they covered their feet, and with two they were flying, and they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphs flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here, I, here am I, send me. He said, Go, and tell this people, Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull, and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. Then I said, For how long, O Lord? And he answered, Until the cities lie ruined and without inhabitant, and the houses are left deserted, and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away, and the land is utterly forsaken. And though a tenth remains in the land, it will again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and oak leave stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, the great God who is uh, high above us, set apart and infinitely holy. Lord, we thank you that you've spoken to us through your word and we thank you that through it we can know who you are and what you're like. And Lord, we thank you that your word is powerful and that by your Holy Spirit and through your word, you're able to change hearts and um, change lives. Lord, we pray that that might be the case this morning uh, for your glory and for the sake of building us up and building your church. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're visual people, aren't we? And we live in an extremely visual world. Our sense of sight is our most dominant sense, so much so that it's estimated that 80 to 85% of all our perception and our learning and our cognition and our physical activity, so walking, running, bike riding, they're all guided mainly by our sense of sight. By God's design, we take in the world around us through our sense of sight more than any of the others And the world around us appeals to our sense of sight as well, doesn't it? So we have the beauty of nature and we have the clever designs of architecture and 
the trends in fashion, and especially the world of advertising, all skewed to catch our attention and even amaze us, all via what we see with our eyes. What we don't get to see with our eyes, though, is the spiritual world that's just as real and just as immediate as the world we can see. We don't see angels or demons. We don't see heaven or hell. And we don't see God. For Christians and non-Christians alike, this can be a challenge, to say the least. It's not uncommon to hear sceptics say something along the lines of, well, I'd be more inclined to believe in God if he'd just come down and show himself to me. And for us as Christians, it's a daily exercise in faith and trust to go about our lives as if we were living in the presence of the Lord because we don't see him. Well, we may not see God, but we have here in this chapter an account of Isaiah's vision of God. For a brief moment, Isaiah saw beyond the veil and he encountered the Lord of hosts and it changed him. And like Isaiah, we need so much to have a right view of God impressed onto our hearts and minds. Well, we read in chapter 6, verse 1, that Isaiah says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord. Before we look in detail at what Isaiah saw, it's worth making a brief comment about the context. That is, the year that King Uzziah died. So Uzziah was one of only a few, maybe four or five good kings of Judah after Solomon. And his reign was pretty good. So he was faithful to the Lord, at least for the early part of his reign. And all up he reigned for 52 years during a time of relative peace and prosperity. And then he died. Like all people that ever came before him, and all people that have come since, and all of us here in this room, and everyone that has ever or will ever be born, Uzziah died. And in the year that he died, Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord. God is infinite, he's eternal, he's unchangeable, and he's alive, he's alive. Unlike the fragile and the uncertain world that we live in, God is the same yesterday, today and forever, and he's alive. And that's why we sing that song, you never change, yesterday, today and forever, we worship your name for you never change. Back to the vision. And Isaiah writes, I saw the Lord high and exalted. There's something about height that goes hand in hand with a sense of awe, isn't there? We seem to have a fascination with things that are high. The world's tallest mountain or the world's highest waterfall and the world's tallest building. They're all captivating in some way. So standing at 828 metres tall, nearly a kilometre in the sky, the Burj Khalifa in Dubai is the world's tallest building. 
110,000 tonnes of concrete and 22 million man-hours went into building it. And the main reason for building it was to put Dubai on the map. Build a high building, put a place on the map and say that here is a place of power and influence and glory. And there's something captivating about experiencing heights as well. If you've ever stood at the top of a mountain or at the top of a cliff, you know the feeling. I remember taking a trip out to the Devil's Gullet, Devil's Gullet in the middle of winter a few years ago. There was something about standing at the top of that cliff on that lookout with the view and the icy cold wind billowing up the cliff face and into our faces that really just gave you a sense of awe and grandeur that made you feel very small and very insignificant in comparison. We're almost like standing at the bottom of a cliff. Isaiah looks up and he sees God, high, exalted and seated on a throne. Isaiah sees that God is king. We like to think of God as our comforter as our refuge, as our saviour. And those are all proper ways of thinking about God if we trust in him. But the God here in Isaiah's vision isn't first and foremost a God of comfort or solace or refuge, but a God who sits on the throne and reigns as king. Isaiah sees God as he's described over and over again throughout the Bible. God is king. And not just king, but the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Isaiah sees the Lord Almighty, high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. In the ancient Near Eastern world, it was common for nobles and royals and kings to wear really extravagant clothes. Um, so it was, would have been common for them to have trains out of their robes. Um, and not just because they liked the fashion, not just for the sake of it, but it was a status symbol. It, w- it was a way of saying, here's a, I've got power and I've got influence. The vision that Isaiah sees is one of God's robe being like next level extravagant. It fills the temple. You can see it, can't you? The Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, the train of his robe cascading down over the throne and down and out through the space and up the walls and to the ceiling, filling the entire temple. What this vision's saying is that God's power, his influence and his glory are beyond anything that belongs to any other We read on in verse 2 and 3 that above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth 
is full of his glory. We're told that flying above God was seraphim, a type of celestial being or angel who it seems like have literally just one job, just one job, to praise and glorify God. And there's a zealousness and an intensity about what they're doing, isn't there? In fact, the root Hebrew word for seraph means something along the lines of the burning one, a creature who burns with zeal and fervor for the task at hand. Imagine that. These powerful celestial beings who are so on fire for the worship and the holiness of God that they're like a raging furnace. Almost like those images you see of aluminium smelters filled with molten metal. Again, there's a sense of things being next level and dangerous. You wouldn't want to go near it. And you also get the sense that you're peeking into a world where what you're seeing is something that goes on all day, every day, for eternity. Seraphim, covering their faces and feet out of a reverence and a fear for the God they're praising, flying with their other two wings and continually calling to each other, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. Holiness is the supreme attribute of God that's worth paying attention to. By constantly calling out this word, holy, 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 the seraph were drawing attention to an aspect of God's character that one author, Rudolf Otto, calls the mysterium tremendum. That is the awesome strangeness, the fearsome otherness, or the great mystery of God. In one sense, this means how completely set apart, different, or other he is from anything that's been created. And in another sense, it means that by being set apart, God alone has a purity and a sinlessness that comes from being so totally removed from anything profane or common. Well, there's actually no comparison. And words are inadequate to describe the holiness of God, but it can help to think about it a bit like the sun. Radiant, untouchable, and dangerous. Anything that goes near it is obliterated. You can't look into it, or you'll go blind. And even 150 million kilometres away, you can still feel its heat, And you can still get burnt. What would it look like to treat the holiness of God with the same sense of caution and reverence that we treat the sun? Well, the more caution and reverence we have for God and His holiness, the more seriousness we begin to have towards God. And it's a seriousness that John Piper would call the happiest seriousness of all. Well, we read in verse 4, 
that at the sound of the seraph's voices, the doorpost and the threshold shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. A combination between the zeal and the power of the seraphim, and more importantly, the content of their message, is so weighty and so thunderous that the doorposts and the thresholds, or the foundations of the doors, the very strongest part of the temple, they shook, and the whole place was filled with smoke. In his commentary on Isaiah, Alec Matea writes this, and I love it, Shaking is the customary reaction of the earth to divine presence, as if the earth has no other choice than to shake because of the awesome presence of Almighty God. We read also that the temple filled with smoke at the sound of seraph's voices, and it's a great picture, isn't it? A burning, fiery, consuming presence, but also one that's shrouded in smoke and veiled and hard to see. In fact, it's generally accepted that part of the reason for the temple filling up with smoke is to shield Isaiah from seeing God's face. I remember going to an annual fireworks show in the Brisbane CBD called Riverfire, and the fireworks themselves were spectacular, as fireworks are, but the main event was the F-111 flyover. So as soon as the fireworks had finished, you would hear from a distance the sound of this fighter jet coming really close, really quickly, and all of a sudden it would appear right over the buildings, and when it got to where the people were, it would shoot straight up into the night sky, vertical, doing what's called a dump and burn. And it would shoot up into the night sky, this uh, flame of fire coming out of the engines, and the noise, the noise that came from that plane filled the whole place up. It filled the atmosphere And when you heard it, it's like it got into your bones. And you had no choice but to be captivated. We have no choice but to be captivated by this God. The message that thundered from the seraphs and the message that thunders to us like jet engines filling the night sky is that we simply have to take God seriously. We so need to have a sense of awe and wonder and reverence and even mystery for the God of Isaiah 6. It's no wonder that Isaiah's response was one of dread. We read in verse 5 that he almost involuntarily cries out, Woe to me, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Having laid eyes on God, and having come face to face with His holiness, Isaiah is acutely aware of his own impurity. Some other versions of the Bible translate the word ruined as the word undone. Isaiah feels undone, completely at an end of himself because of his unclean lips. And he knows that he's a goner. And it's not even like unclean lips is the worst sin imaginable, is it? It's not like Isaiah said... 
woe to me for I am a man of adultery or I am a man of violence or I am a man of murder. Now, the thing that brings Isaiah undone before God is the seemingly small offence of unclean lips and living among a people of unclean lips. It's a bit like a plane crash that happened in 1990. A British Airways flight came crashing down, not because of any major mechanical issue, but because one of the bolts in the windscreen was the wrong diameter. The plane took off, it got going, the windscreen came in and the plane was torn apart. And the message that we get loud and clear from this chapter of Isaiah is that near enough is nowhere near good enough. The thing is that when we think of the things that would bring us undone before God, we think of the big ticket items, don't we? Our minds go immediately to things like adultery or porn or habitual drunkenness as the things that God hates. But what about those little things that we're so quick to make room for in our lives? What about those occasional crass or lewd jokes? What about that little feeling of jealousy that gets into our heart when our friend has some kind of success and we feel like we've missed out? Or the way we sarcastically belittle someone to make ourselves feel that little bit bigger and better about ourselves? Or the white lie we tell our spouse to avoid getting into an argument. Isaiah 6 wants to tell us that in the face of an infinitely holy and righteous God, these small things bring us undone. We're ruined. Part of the reason we don't get this is because we don't see our sin in the context of an infinitely holy God We see our sin in comparison to other people. And it's true that the message of this chapter isn't just about our own individual shortcomings. We read that Isaiah was grieved by the sin of the people around him as well. He says, I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. Sometimes we look at the faults and failings of people around us and we're grieved. And we may even feel sorry for them in a way that says, I can see that the way that you're living and what you're doing isn't working for you and if you would come back and follow God, your life could be easier. Or, more broadly, we look at the lies that are so widely accepted by our culture, the things that God hates are held up as good and true and we're grieved again and we long for some kind of revival or we long for Jesus to come back. But we can also be tempted to look at the sins of people around us and use them as kind of a yardstick 
for our own goodness before God, rather than seeing that really we're all in the same boat. You see your friend get a new girlfriend, and soon he stops coming to church, he starts sleeping with her, and he moves in with her. And you feel that little bit better about yourself because you're not that bad. You say, yep, sure. I might swear a bit, fly off the handle when someone cuts me off in traffic, but at least I'm not living with my girlfriend and sleeping with her. I'm better than that. I'm okay. I've got it together. Or you see your friend go down the road of hard drug use and you might even feel sad for her but there's another voice in says, inside that says, I'm stronger than that. I would never go down that road. I'm okay. I've got it together. Or you might be sitting there watching the news and you see the mania and the stupidity of some of these groups of protesters and you think to yourself, what a bunch of delinquents. All the while, nursing and feeding the self-righteousness that's in your own heart, which is the very self-righteousness that brings you absolutely, totally, completely undone before a holy God. It's a hard message to hear, isn't it? The bad news is that if this is us, and it is, then all of us here would stand before God unclean, guilty, and ruined. Nowhere to run and nowhere to hide and saying, woe is me. Makes you wonder what what hope is there? Well, we read on in verse 6 and 7. One of the seraphs flew to me, that is Isaiah, with a live coal in his hand, which he'd taken with tongs from the altar. With it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Despite having every right to judge and destroy Isaiah on the spot, we read that God is quick to forgive. He reaches out to Isaiah by a seraph taking hot coals and touching them to Isaiah's mouth. They weren't some kind of magic cleansing coals, but they're a picture of the miraculous cleansing power of God's forgiveness. It's worth noting the sequence of events here as well. Isaiah had a sense of his sin and he cried out, woe is me. He didn't call out to God and say, God, can you give me a year? I'll go away, clean myself up and then I'll come back and stand before you and I think I'll be okay. He didn't make any kind of crazy vows and say, God, if you let me live, I'll devote my life to you. And he didn't say, 
It's only unclean lips, God. It's okay, isn't it? No. Isaiah experienced what Psalm 51 calls a broken spirit. He experienced a broken and a contrite heart and he confessed his sin before God. And he experienced the forgiveness and cleansing of God. The taking away of his guilt meant that he was no longer liable to be punished and the cleansing of his lips, symbolic for his total cleansing, meant that he was able to be in God's presence and live. Kind of like being up close to the sun and being able to live. And not just live, but have fellowship with God, have a relationship with him. It's an amazing thought, isn't it? A relationship with this holy God. Well, if this morning you're a person who's broken in spirit because of a keen awareness of your sin, if you're a person who maybe feels ashamed or dirty or undone, then please take comfort from this picture of Isaiah's experience before God. Your own feelings of brokenness or being undone, they might be from your past. That one sin that visits your memory late at night and makes you feel just as guilty and just as exposed as the time you were there. You had an affair. You stole money from your parents when you knew they were doing it tough. You lost your temper and you kicked a stuffing out of someone, put him in hospital. I was talking to a Christian guy recently, he grew up pretty rough and he used to have trouble with his temper and he was describing a time where he absolutely lost it, just flew off the handle, something triggered him and he was saying he made a mess of his house, punched holes in the wall and apparently this wasn't a one-off, it was pretty characteristic of this guy to act like this. He had tears running down his cheek and he couldn't look me in the eye as he was telling me his story. It's as if he was saying, how could God forgive that? How could God forgive me? Or maybe your story is different and you're wrestling with things in the present maybe only seemingly small sins but the daily battle is leaving you feeling exposed like God would be well within his rights to just give up on you and leave you to your ruin you snap at the kids a bit more than you should you find it a real task to be generous And even when you are asked to give of your time and your money, you do it begrudgingly. You find yourself laughing along at crude jokes with your mates when you know you probably shouldn't be taking part in the conversation. Well, if that's you, and you're feeling tired and exposed and broken in spirit, 
then know, know from this passage that God is slow to anger and quick to forgive. God's a God of boundless, infinite mercy and love and he makes a way for your guilt to be taken away and your sin to be atoned for. We have here in Isaiah a picture of a God who forgives. It's not the full story yet, but we know that God stands ready and able to take away your guilt and draw you close to him. And when he does, it's final. There's no ifs or buts or what about this sin or God, are you sure you can forgive that? Now, the declaration that comes from God is a declaration of not guilty, clean. What's left for us is to trust in what God's already done, to let it sink deeply and daily into our hearts and minds, and to use this language to speak it over our lives. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And it's an amazing, amazing joy and freedom and relief that comes from really knowing and really believing that truth. Well, as I said, we don't have the full story yet. But as we read on, we get a glimpse of what God's doing and how he accomplishes this forgiveness. Our chapter goes on in verses 8 to 12, with Isaiah answering the call to preach a message to the people of Judah, which ultimately just reinforces their hardness of heart. Instead of bringing repentance, the message that Isaiah takes to the people hardens them even further, and simply confirms their unwillingness to respond positively to God. Isaiah cries out, for how long, O Lord? And and God's response is, until I've sent everyone away and the land is utterly forsaken. And there's total destruction. In 607 BC, the Babylonians, sent by God, invaded Judah for the first time and King Nebuchadnezzar took some of the best young men, including Daniel, to serve in Babylon. In 597 BC, Nebuchadnezzar invaded again and he laid siege to Jerusalem, this time taking the king at the time and 10,000 people into captivity. And in 587 BC, Jerusalem's totally destroyed and all the people were taken into exile. Because of their hardness of heart, the nation of Judah's wiped off the map. But... There's a tiny ray of hope here at the end of chapter 6. One commentator writes that in typical Isaiah style, hope is the unexpected fringe sewn into the garment of doom. The end of verse 13 says, But as the terebinth and oak, so types of trees, leave stumps when they're cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. We're told that just a stump will be left in the land and that the holy seed will be the stump. 
So eventually, some exiles did go back and resettle in Jerusalem, and they did rebuild the temple and the walls, but the nations of Israel and Judah never really got back any wealth or any status or any influence as a world nation. The last we hear hear of them for about 400 years of history, they're a small community of people living under Persian rule. And then the history of this group of people goes quiet. We hear nothing for 400 years. And then we open the pages of Matthew chapter 1. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew 1 from verse 12 onwards. And we read who Jesus' ancestors were after the time of the exile. And we learn that there's 14 generations from the time of the exile to the time of Jesus. The Holy Seed. Jesus Christ, who's high and exalted, seated on the throne with the train of his robe filling the temple, the earth shaking at his presence. The infinite, eternal and unchangeable God, born to peasant parents in an animal stable. Jesus Christ, who Philippians tells us, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. In Jesus we have the full story. And it's the most amazing, out-of-this-world, stunning story ever told. The God of Isaiah's vision, whose glory and grandeur is beyond us, suffered and died on a cross. Jesus is the holy seed that was promised. He's the lion from the tribe of Judah and he's the lamb that was slain. As the holy seed from the land, even he was cut off, broken and crushed. He was exiled from the Father so that we can dwell in the Father's presence. He was made to be guilty so that our guilt is taken away and our sin is atoned for. Because of Jesus, our woe is me becomes do not weep. For the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Because of Jesus, 
our woe is me becomes worthy as the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and glory and praise forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we thank you that you've not stayed far off. Lord, you've not stayed on your throne, but humbled yourself and become a man, taking on the nature of a servant and dying on a cross. Lord, what joy and what freedom is ours now that our guilt is taken away and our sin atoned for. Lord, we thank you for Jesus, the lamb who was slain. He alone is worthy of glory and praise forever and ever. Amen.